0: I invite you to turn within your Bibles to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew. Matthew, if you're using a red Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page uh, 915. 915. wanted to uh, bring our church family into the awareness. Uh, uh, Phil Thompson texted uh, the elders this morning just to let us know that the, uh, in the Ukraine, in the Ukraine, excuse me, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and that's what it was called. But in Ukraine, um, we as a church family uh, had sent a work crew over to uh, build a seminary building. And uh, we just received word today that uh, it was being used as a hostel, a shelter for for refugees, and it has been hit by some bombs, and uh, which is unfortunate. But uh, it is a connection that our church family has uh, to Ukraine, and uh, we had supported the uh, Shevelenkos uh, for many years, and uh, so we want to ought to keep them in prayer during this time. So as we're getting ready to look at. Matthew chapter 6 let's uh let's pray first Heavenly Father thank you for the daily benefits that you give to us the awareness that though we walk through the shadow of death uh, we ought not fear any evil for you are with us and we we stand with Christians who are in Ukraine who are caught between world powers making moves. None of these things have caught you by surprise. And we give you thanks for that. And we don't know why when we put effort into something it's not, as, it's not preserved. But we do trust you. Uh, and we also give you thanks for the many many students who were instructed to handle the Word of God from that school and serve as pastors in their communities. We pray that there would be freedom from fear in Ukraine, uh, that war would come to an end, and we lament over the struggle that our brethren are experiencing. It is not a great thing when war occurs, but we also know That as we await your return, there will be wars and rumors of wars. And so we could look at this as a season in which you could very well return. So we ask that you would return, that we would see you in the clouds, that we would be gathered up to be with you. And I pray to your Lord that you would help us be faithful as we see the day drawing near. And thank you for our brethren in Ukraine who are gathering even today under the threat of bombing, meeting in their churches, and doing so boldly and courageously. And may we also, in honor, do the same. In our day where we have relatively free free passage, we have opportunity to make choices, would we choose to be with your people and celebrate your glory? In your name we pray. Amen. So Matthew chapter Uh, Six, I'm going to be looking at uh, a number of verses here. Um, Don't let it scare you. Uh, We're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 to 18, but I'm going to take out the Lord's Prayer and I'm going to teach on that in a coming week as its own unit. Uh, There are three illustrations that are similar in nature, and so I'm grouping them together uh, to teach them this morning. And uh, again, it, it continues on the theme of honesty of heart and the need for uh, sincerity, not just in obedience to the law, honesty that we can't keep the law, but honest, honest integrity of heart when we worship God as well, that we not be something that we're not, that we would be honest and genuine. And so, what I'm going to do to start this uh, message, I want us to look back again at Matthew 5, verse 20. I'm going to read that verse, then jump down to verse 48, and then read the first verse of chapter 6. Okay, so find chapter 5, verse 20, and follow along with me, please. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I'm going to read one more. Drop down to verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So, pew rents. Pure rents are something maybe that we're not accustomed to in our church tradition, but it is something that uh, maybe we've heard about, maybe not really understood what it was about, uh, but really was an inequitable practice, which has its roots in our founding era. It was a way to subsidize the uh, upkeep of the building. It was the way to support the needs of the minister, and uh, it was an auction system. An auction system where uh, church pews could be rented by a family for a year. Uh, Box seats uh, predate our open seat structure. You see uh, box seats there on the on the wall. Uh, they were designed, actually, so that you didn't have to sit with people that you didn't know. And uh, there was an added value of keeping some of the heat in, in a, in a cold and drafty building in the wintertime. Now, if there was a balcony, uh, that area was reserved for uh, the poor and uh, the enslaved, and that was where they would sit. In the cold months, people would bring with them that pew warmer that you see there. It's a little contraption. Uh, it's got uh, like tin siding in it, and it, people would bring some coals uh, from home. And so, putting that in the box seat area would be uh, advantageous to your little family that you're you're there worshiping with. And uh, over time, churches began to shift how they they funded themselves. And uh, the first half, up through the first half of the 1900s, people people still rented pews and then there was a shift away from it now i want to show you a little chart here this was an advertised chart uh, uh, for the uh, first methodist episcopal church in uh evanston illinois 1911 they advertised this pew chart you can see colors there the green section uh went for 200 dollars a year and uh the back pew the very back in the yellow section uh those were 25 uh pews and uh You know, it's kind of uh, interesting to note that uh, back in 1911, 200 bucks was worth about $6,000, and uh, 25 bucks was maybe like $700 uh, by today's standards. And uh, you know, actually, it wouldn't be a bad idea. Well, I mean, ask yourself, why would people want the green seats? Why would they pay so much more for the green seats, you know? A gothic church, like, that's the actual church where those seats are located uh, in the picture there. Uh, you know, it was actually where the well-to-do could be part of the community. There were not large sporting events in those days, uh, you know, in the 1800s. So it was not the place to gather. But it was the p- the church was the place where people with monetary power could be seen by others. In fact, if you bought a green seat, yeah, you wouldn't have to tip your, tip your chin up so high to look to the pulpit, but you had the added benefit of being seen by others around you. And it was strategic, and uh, it could reinforce your place in society. You could, you could be expected to be nominated for particular political party interests because you were seen in church. And so it was a way of advancing yourself in society. You know what? There's really nothing new under the sun, is there? There is nothing new under the sun. And Jesus, who was the wisest in the line of Solomon, a greater than Solomon, addresses this perennial problem of perverting true worship and distorting, distorting the worship of God through a false presentation And it's important to recognize that as we look at these illustrations, Jesus is certainly not advocating ostentatiousness. But on the other hand, he is not also looking for a false humility that says, well, I'm not just going to do anything because I might possibly do it wrongly. Jesus, as he's teaching here, is in the same theme of worshiping with an honesty of heart before god who sees us and knows us better than we know ourselves jesus has been communicating about the need for an honest heart a whole heart an undivided heart that's not looking in two different directions and it's so important Jesus in another place talked about having your hands on the plow but then looking back. That that person was actually unfit to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is important to our uh, how we worship and how we have a relationship with God. You know, putting your hands on the plow and looking back, what happens? <laughs> you plow a really perverse route. It's kind of like some people I know who, when they, when they look, look on the steering wheel, and they, their, their, their hands follow their eyes. And having a divided focus is, is not healthy, and it's, not, uh, not, it's actually dangerous for our spirituality. We may think that we are entering into the kingdom of heaven, but we may have deceived our own selves to think that we have a standing before him. And so I want to try to emphasize through these three illustrations this morning the central idea that I believe Jesus is teaching is that your heavenly Father rewards the service of those who earnestly seek Him. Your heavenly Father rewards the service of those who earnestly seek Him. Verse 1, it said, I believe, pretty plainly beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your, heavenly, from your Father who is in heaven. And I do believe we need to take seriously the fact that Jesus says very clearly that he does reward. Your heavenly Father does reward service. I think it's helpful for us to do a kind of a glance through the sermon here and see how many times jesus says that our father rewards um use your hand to save your spot but turn back and maybe it's a page to chapter 5 verse 11 and 12 here after the beatitudes are in the at the tail end of the beatitudes jesus says blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Reward. The Father is intent on rewarding the sacrifice and service of His children. And we ought not diminish that truth. Um, Let's turn just a little bit further into verse 16. Chapter 5, verse 16. He intends and he wants us to serve him. He wants us to show the light. And in verse 16, he says, um, in the same way, let your light shine uh, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How is this done? Well, it's living honestly before God's law. It's not manufacturing a false righteousness. It's being honest honest. Being obedient, confessing sin, following. And the illustrations are designed to weed out those hypocritical acts to to encourage a saltiness of character so that this this light can go out. God is looking for this light to come out, and he wants to reward those who are following him. Um, There's three words that pop up in chapter 5 in chapter 6, words about reward, recompense, or treasure. So in verse 6, uh, excuse me, in verse 46 of the same, same chapter, um, follow, follow me there. Chapter 5, verse 46, he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? So, we ought not downplay the truth that God intends to reward us for obediently following him. Um, I'd like you to look at uh, chapter 6 and see how in the three illustrations this is repeated over and over. And I think I haven't read these verses yet, so I think follow along. In verse 2 it says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners and that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. When you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Drop down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Three times. Three illustrations. Some people are receiving a a reward in this temporal world that's going to fade. But the Father intends to give us a reward that is eternal, that will never fade away. It will be ours forever. Um, if we keep reading in chapter 6, and we're going to come to these verses eventually in the series, but I would be remiss if I didn't draw our attention to these in the context. Uh, chapter 6, verse 21. Uh, verse 21, um, Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So there is treasure, there is some reward, and it's brought to our attention. And God intends to give us something greater than this world can give us. In verse 24, uh, we see these No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We think that money will give us a reward, but it doesn't last. God himself, who is eternal, gives us a reward that cannot fade, it cannot be destroyed, it cannot be eaten by inflation, it is is for ours for eternity. And since our Heavenly Father knows what we need, we ought to seek first, in verse 33, we ought to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto us. And so, we ought not downplay the emphasis of reward that is in this text. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, after all. And Jesus is the one who's teaching it. And if our Heavenly Father rewards us, then reward itself cannot be wrong. Cannot be wrong. Sometimes, I know, we can feel awkward about achievement in things that we would consider spiritual discipline. For example, I know I have felt awkward at times about rewards for scripture memory. And thinking of is this is this appropriate? And I'm sure if I've thought about it, others have also thought about it as well. But the Protestant tradition of unmerited favor tends to skew our thinking about wages and recompense, remuneration considering the notion of rewards and this is i believe most certainly a misunderstanding of the difference between reward for virtue and grace for salvation and jesus distinguishes the two throughout his ministry and we ought we actually rob ourselves of the potential of Serving with a just motivation, knowing that he intends to reward our investment in his kingdom. The giving up of our luxury in this time period will be rewarded. God intends to give to his children lavishly. And he also gives us even something more in this lifetime. Something that money cannot even give. He's inviting us throughout this whole sermon to experience the joy and the flourishing for which we've been meant to be created. We've been created for this purpose, to, to enjoy and be blessed. And so often we rob ourselves by just hanging on to our time, our money, our resources, and we're not like willing to part with them for something that is greater. The joy of, of experiencing a, a, a generosity of the heart that cannot even be described unless you've experienced it in the serving of God and one another. Uh, Jesus is is inviting his listeners to to serve and to worship him for the true reward that he alone can give. Now I want to just, before we move into these illustrations, I I want to explain the problem that can come by not valuing the reward that the Heavenly Father uh, describes as something he delights to give to his children. There is a danger of resisting reward in Christian experience. Um, It's called altruism. Uh, Immanuel Kant developed an ethical trap that I believe some Christians can fall into. I know I have fallen into it myself. He considered true virtue to be altruism. Now that word may be something we don't use every day, but it's the belief in or practice of disinterested and selfless concern for the well-being of others. Now that's not wrong in and of itself. It's not wrong, and it sounds simple. However, the root of it can be unfounded. Why? Why is it that you know the disinterested the selfless concern uh, how could how could, how could that be wrong like how could that be be a way of wrong thinking well james james 3 and 4 talks about our human heart being a fountain a fountain that out of the heart we all make choices in our lives and it The choices themselves do reveal what we desire, what we prefer, and the passions of our being. We choose what we perceive to be desirable. For example, Eve in the garden was sinless when she believed the lie of the devil Because what she saw, she perceived to be desirable. She chose what she perceived to be best for her. And so some Christians historically have tried to remove all sense of pleasure and reward as a motivator for serving God. If we were to love God truly then we would love him and choose him as a pleasurable experience above everything else. In that sense, it's not disinterested. It should be the very interested movements of our heart to choose him above everything else. So there's a little trap here in this, and I want to illustrate a very extreme view of this that was very popular, very popular in the 1700s at the turn of the century, about the time our country was being founded. There was a pastor named Samuel Hopkins who had a theology that was developed for him. I like his hat. I don't know if I could get that on. But he, it was called Hopkinsianism. And he required for church membership, he required that people articulate a willingness to be damned for the glory of God. In other words, you ought to be willing to be damned to hell if it should serve the greater good of God's glory. That's a very extreme view of a disinterested uh, kind of love for God. And a selfless concern. But yet, no one, no one should be willing to be damned since it's truly God's pleasure that you enter into heaven and experience joy for eternity. It's a warped viewpoint. Your Heavenly Father takes great delight in giving you goodness and blessing and flourishing. He wants this for you. And so, it ought to also resonate with your soul. You ought to see it as something desirable to avoid the fields of sin and leave them and go and be with Him and enjoy Him for all of eternity. He's going to lavish upon us the joy of heaven and we will make much of Him. We will glorify Him and enjoy it. It won't be like sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp, saying, I wish I had my magazine. That's not going to be the way it is, folks. We will experience overwhelming joy, and we will not want anything else. Oh, that we could see the reward that God gives in this lifetime by the same measure. We would be leaving sinful patterns like nothing. Oh, that God would give us that. So Jesus, he's, he's talking about rewards, so don't get confused. Don't think, oh, if I'm serving for this reward, then that somehow I'm not loving God. No, God is being adored by looking at his rewards that he gives. He gives himself. He gives pure happiness to us. And so it's so important we see Christ in this light and look at the rewards he gives. We also need then to take care to earnestly seek him. We need to take care to earnestly seek him. Now we come to the illustrations. And in these illustrations, there's a lot of desire to be noticed by other people. You know, we were all made to want to be noticed. That may strike you as odd. But have you ever heard children say, watch me, right? Why do they do that? They want to be noticed. And adults also want to be noticed. And instead of watch me, it comes across as more subtle, you know, like, did you notice that da-da-da-da-da-da? Right? Oh, I did this and da 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 Oh, I posted this on my Instagram or whatever. And the problem with things like social media, it strokes a narcissist tendency in all of us because of sin. We want more notice. We want more attention. Ironically, this comes because we were made in God's image. Ironically, because God wants all the world to look to him. Well, then why is it wrong, why is it wrong for God to want that? It would be wrong if he was a sinful creature, but he is the most happy creature and the most blessed and holy creature, and he wants us to find the best for ourselves. It becomes service to us if we look to him instead of ourselves. And so God is offering us the happiness that we so deserve, but yet Christ in these illustrations warns us about seeking attention and having a divided heart that's looking in two different directions. We need to have a whole heart, an earnest heart, in how we worship God. And so in verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. To be seen by them. To be seen by them. That word, be seen, is a stage word. It literally is a word that we would rightly use to describe theater. Theater. Watch out, Jesus says, that you do not do your righteousness in front of others in order to be theater to them. Don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees who perform their righteousness so that people may laud them. Take care that you're earnestly seeking God and His kingdom and the reward that He gives. That's what your Heavenly Father desires, and He desires to lavish on you. An earnest heart is needed in order to handle all of these illustrations. And so in verse 2 to 4, He gives us the first illustration about giving from An honest heart. Giving from an honest heart. Giving is at the heart of who God is. He is generous to his creation. In the last sermon, we we read about how our Heavenly Father gives rain to the just and the unjust. He allows the sun to rise upon the those who have faith and those who don't have faith. He does it seemingly without fanfare. There's no, you know, when the sun rises, there's no, like, airplane that's following with a big tagline behind it saying, I did this, look at me. We intuitively know that this this is God's glory when we see these things. He's giving us the rain so that we may harvest in season, and provides food for us, and yet he does it without fanfare. Now, in this illustration, there's the discussion about giving alms, and and money can be a real help to people. But when giving is done in an ostentatious way, it is distracting, and it is theater. It is It is like laundering a reputation. What do I mean by that? Well, it's delegitimized. You may have a character that is actually craven on the inside, but what you're doing is you're trying to display to others that you have clean laundry. This happens all the time. Philanthropy can be a way of You know, cleansing a character. Mob bosses do this all the time. They give to mama's church. They give to mom's church so that, you know, the diocese will have, you know, the baptismal font named for them. And so that everyone will see it and know, hey, you know, like, Luciano's not that bad. Look what he does. Some people launder dirty money Others launder dirty character. There are ostentatious donations by monopolists in the tech industry who give great sums of money for vaccines in African nations. They have a bad character, but they're trying to launder themselves before people. But the average person in the pew may also be guilty of this too. We may decide to give directly rather than go through the anonymity of the church budget. To be well thought of by others is always a temptation because we're leveraging to try to increase and we could leverage in our giving so that in the business world people then see us as someone that I need to do business with. So what does Jesus mean by giving in such a way that your right hand does not know what the left is doing? Well, it means, first of all, being unconscious, unself-conscious, to be unself-impressed with what you're doing. There should be no trumpets in the streets, but inside of us, there should not be any internal music like For he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow that no one can deny. Because look what I put in the plate. Oh, but no one knows that I put that in the plate, but I know that I put that in the plate. There's no getting around it. As hard as you try to be anonymous in the process of giving, someone will know what you're giving or not giving. So you can ride this horse, And fall off the horse. God does not ask us to give by faith for ourselves, for for himself alone. He does it so that we we do it for ourselves. Giving by faith. It's not a lack of, you know, it's not a, we we don't give and we don't have motivation to give out of guilt. That's not what we should be doing at all. It's what God does within your soul, that there is a great reward. That when you give to God, there is an internal joy that is yours. That cannot, like, I can't, I can't describe for you the experience. You have to learn it yourself. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He wants us to experience the liberation of from self. And when we give, we get joy that cannot be explained. But if we're giving for the purpose of theater, like pure rents, <laughs> the cheap flowers are going to be sent our way. You know what happens to flowers when you're, you know, you've, you've done a performance on the stage and you get those flowers at the end of the concert? Those, those flowers, they might last for a week. But then guess what? The vase is empty and you want to fill those vases again. And when we're doing things at a performance for others, an accolation, we actually fall into a trap of wanting more and more and more. And we can never be satisfied. We ought to be praying, secondly, from an honest heart. An honest heart. Verses five through eight. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when, they, when you go, when you pray, go to your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. For the Father, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Example of prayer, it follows the exact same pattern In this illustration, you know, it's kind of like the same characters, the same setting, the same plot. The hypocrites are those who are motivated by what other people will perceive them to be. The problem is not just the location. I mean, praying in the middle of the street is a bit awkward. Yes, I get that. That's not the only problem. But it's their motives. Because if we were to take this absolutely rigidly literal, we would have to prohibit prayer in a worship service. Yeah, I'd have to pray with a sack over my head. Or when others come to pray. Jesus himself prayed in public too. So he wasn't against public prayer. Uh, Maybe you've seen this painting, uh, the Norman Rockwell painting called Saying Grace. You've seen this maybe. It went actually for auction a few years ago, almost a decade ago, for 46 million dollars. But in some ways, it captures the kind of prayer that is genuine, that's honest, not ostentatious. It just look how frail those people look who are knelt over their food praying. You know? It's not wrong to pray before others in a public location, but don't get on the preacher voice when you do it. But don't be embarrassed to not pray. Daniel prayed with the window open. It's okay to pray, but God knows the heart. Whether or not we're doing so for public purposes or not, we don't necessarily want to draw the attention of the world, but we want to be faithful in our following of Christ. Verses 16 to 18, we have the last illustration. And so I've left this blank open, and you probably expect the word fasting. And if you put that in there, you're wrong. <laughs> Sorry. It's abstaining. Abstaining from an honest heart. Because that's, that's what fasting is. In this last example, I believe we could also fairly use the word discipline. For the word fasting, as well as the word Abstaining. And so the exercise of a spiritual discipline may also be an advertisement for others to see. In my youth, I um, I grew up in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. It was a Catholic uh, community. The Catholic cathedral was there. Uh, St. Francis Xavier University was there. 95% of the community was Roman Catholic. And I was... Uh, son of a Baptist minister in my public school. And so you can imagine the kind of ribbing that I got because they knew that my father was a priest. Think about that. My origins were always in dispute. As a non-Catholic, I grew up seeing children go to Mass on Ash Wednesday. And again, if you're not familiar with Ash Wednesday, it starts a 46-day period of fasting and prayer. And historically, it was rooted in a, a, a time of catechesis, a time of instruction for new converts. And it would culminate on on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, with baptism, and entrance into the church. And uh, kids would ask me what I was giving up for Lent. And uh, it had me thinking, wow, it was kind of nice to be Protestant. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have to give anything up. They were giving up ice cream and stuff like that. I was like, "No, give me more ice cream," you know. But actually, the spiritual discipline of fasting or abstaining is not not a bad thing. It's a valuable tool for people who are our soul and physical body. I know that uh, there are times when we feed upon things like sugars. (laughs) that we tend to get distracted and we get kind of caught and our minds are not as focused as they ought to be. There is a time when restricting one's liberty can be helpful because it can help focus our hearts back to Christ. I know some who have found themselves consuming too much news and media that they abstained for a long period of time and they found it enriching to their souls because they were drawn closer to Christ through those experiences. So, for example, if we're abstaining from any food or drink, we should not boast of our abstaining to others. So as to cause others to feel obligated to do what we do, we shouldn't do that. But we should also be careful that we don't draw attention to ourselves as if we're more spiritual if we abstain. We're not saved by food or drink. We're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Where's this, where does this, this uh, ritual come from? Well, it actually is rooted by this Ash Wednesday, you know, ritual is at least partially connected to Tertullian, a church father in the third century, who, who famously said, and this is an abbreviation of what he said, he said, in all our travels and movements and all our coming in and going out, whatever employment occupies us, we mark our foreheads with the sign of the cross. It's a figurative expression to say that, you know, whether I'm coming or going or who, who knows me, that Christ be seen rather than myself. That's, that's the essence of what's being communicated. And in our church history, our, the Tabernacle Church history, we're connected to the radical Protestants who have said, we don't want anything that looks like tradition from the old church. We don't want any of that. And perhaps we have at times been too radical and we've neglected the truth of Jesus when he said that when he leaves, his disciples would fast. That his disciples would deny themselves. When the bridegroom grows away, there will be weeping. There will be sorrow. And I have to ask ourselves, do we fast? Do we give? Do we pray? Our Heavenly Father rewards the service of those who earnestly seek him. Oh, but I, but I have my fire insurance. I know I'm going to heaven. No, no, no. You're missing the joy that could be yours now. He wants to reward you with a happiness and wholeness within your heart that the world cannot take away from you. You know, David told his son Solomon... He said, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart. A whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. And when in the speaking about potential loss of relationship as a people God was not denying individual relationships with individuals within Israel and so in Isaiah and Jeremiah when Israel forsook their heavenly father God told his sons in exile these words in Jeremiah 29 12 to 13 and some of us know these by heart then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In Samaria, Jesus told a woman who had multiple spouses, who was was divided in her her life. She was kind of religious and going up to her temple to pray and to worship. and, And Jesus said this, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God the Father is looking for worshipers. True worshipers. Nothing about the worship of God has changed. Yes, the sacrifices have changed because Jesus has completed everything. But God has always been looking for genuineness of heart in his people, and he rewards it. Do we look at the law? Do we look at the scriptures and flee and say, oh, no, I can't, I don't need to do any of this stuff? That's like works. What am I doing? No, 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 no. God wants us to draw to him And demonstrate our earnestness and love for him through the obedience to his word. Don't be confused as Protestants. God is not going to then say, yes, you can come into my kingdom because you did it all on your own. He doesn't say that at all. But the expression of the heart of gratitude and love and joy, the Father delights to honor and reward his children. Just as much as I delight to give good things to my children, how much more even your heavenly Father who is in heaven. Let's pray.